From Honor Flight Chicago, this is a ghost story. It's actually the story of many ghosts who carried out a post-D-Day mission against the Germans so secret that it remained classified for nearly 50 years after the end of World War II. Chicago area veteran Bernie Bluestein, now 97, was part of a unit that became known as the Ghost Army. They were masters of deception, using inflatable rubber tanks, trucks, and planes, along with phony sound and radio transmissions to trick the Germans into thinking an attack was coming from one location, when in fact, it was coming from somewhere else. It worked. The efforts of the Ghost Army saved thousands of American lives. Bernie Bluestein is proud of the part he played. You were an 18-year-old art student from Cleveland, and you won a full scholarship to attend the Cleveland School of Art. But you figured you figured that Uncle Sam would be calling at some point, and you saw something unique that the Army was offering. What was that something? Well, that something was a notice on the bulletin board, and it said that the U.S. Army was uh, was looking for young artists or any kind of artists that they were uh, that they would be able to use to form a new a new outfit. It's a it was. Uh, an outfit that was going to be involved with camouflage uh, artwork, and it was going to be a non uh, a non uh, fighting unit. It was going to be just a you know non non battle, <laughs> no soldiers, no guns, non combat. And so that intrigued me. Okay, it was about the time that I was going to have to be drafted anyway, so that had to be kind of a godsend for me. Uh, I wasn't soldier-minded. I wasn't gung-ho about becoming a soldier, so that sounded really interesting. So uh, I took their, they said they had a course that was required that would have to be taken at the school, a camouflage course. I took the camouflage course, finished it, and when I finished the course, uh, I uh, it was, thought it was time to, for me to uh, get myself inducted into the service. And so that was in March, in March of 1943, I got inducted into the Army. Well, you couldn't say anything at all about what you were about to do, right? Uh, nothing, nothing at all. Nothing at all. Did you know the degree to which this was top secret? Did you know what you were about to do? At that time, no. I had no idea of anything about it. I had no idea what they were going to do anything and nothing about it other than the fact that it was being non-combat <laughs> that was the only thing i know that interested me <laughs> so you became part of the 23rd headquarters special troops which included about 1100 men um better you were a lot of artists designers there was a, a some actors fashion designer bill blass was in it artist ellsworth kelly was in the unit and right you became known as the ghost army how did that right. come about? What was your mission? Uh, our mission was to uh, be someplace where another outfit was going to be. Okay, we were going to be ghosts. <laughs> and uh, we were going to take the place of these real troops so that they could manipulate, do their things uh, with minimum of casualties. And uh, we would be attracting the enemy thinking letting them think that uh that we were the real troops so we were impersonators and how did you do that how did you do that well we did that uh, quite a number of ways we did it physically with we had uh, rubber dummies 
they're made out of neoprene rubber, and we set them up uh, along the Rhine River, and we set up a camp, a, a fake camp, so to speak. There were only three of us, 300 of us in the cam, actual camouflage division, so there was only three of us there, 300 of us there. And what we did is we came there during the evening hours. And when we came there during the evening hours, what we did is we had a signal car outfit that had a recording system. And the uh, recordings were of troop movement, of tanks and trucks and whatever have you traveling. It was really realistic. It almost sounded real. I mean, it sounded like it was like, you know, uh, an outfit of like 300, 3,000 men or something like that. And we were only 300 men. <laughs> so there was, and, all the, the, uh, there was all this recording that went on, and you had giant speakers that you have to post, I think where there were like 500-pound speakers, and then you would post right. them? Right. That's right. So the tanks, and, the, 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 the vehicles that you were, they were inflatable, you said neoprene, they they were made to look as lifelike as possible so that when German That's reconnaissance it. would go overhead, they would look down and they'd say, wow, there's a lot of tanks and trucks down there. They're massing. That's right. Yeah, it's really weird because what they were is uh, they they had as much detail as they could on there. That was, it was, it was, they were made out of neoprene, so it couldn't be done really sculptured detailed very well. But we camouflaged them, okay? We put camouflage them. But the camouflage is supposed to hide them, of course, and we didn't really want to hide them because we wanted to let the Germans see them and know that they're there. Right. <laughs> they wanted to... So we uh, we exposed them. What we did is we uh, we had to put, uh, if there were tanks, we had tanks there. What we did, we had to uh, make dummy tracks for the tanks because it would look strange having tanks there and not having tracks. Tanks are pretty heavy, and they make impressions on the on the ground. Mm-hmm. So we had the trucks that came by, and with the equipment to make the ruts to look like the tanks were actually uh, driven driven into these rubber dummies were really driven into the uh, into the area, and uh, and uh, and what we did is so that we uh, we set all these things up so the Germans could see that okay, but they were reconnaissance planes. But then we did have the, I don't know if you want me to get involved in this yet, but uh, we had the uh, signal outfits that also had now, uh, they were making communications, sending out messages, okay, fake messages, so the Germans could hear them and understand, think that we were still, we were the real outfit sending out these messages. So we did everything to make it look like we were were the real outfit. And then to, to top it off, to finish it off, then... We know that there were a lot of uh, German uh, German agents that agents or something or other within Virsen, okay. Mm-hmm. So we made sure we went into town and we imitated uh, we imitated the troops. Some um, privates became colonels and uh, we were put on an act. We went into the uh, into the taverns. We circulated wherever we could, let them know that we were there. And we knew that that would infiltrate and get back to the Germans across the Rhine on the other side of the Rhine there. So that was making it even more convincing. And that was all during that first night, of course. And you could, and, not, uh, you, you could not make a mistake. No one at any point in time could make any kind of a mistake. Otherwise, the whole issue, the whole cover is blown, right? 
Yeah, right. But it was very hard to make a mistake, really. I mean, we had it so it was done so well that even when the guys were imitating soldiers, they had the actual names of the soldiers, and they had a, they had backgrounds. They had to memorize certain things about the backgrounds where they were from and all, in case people in the town say, "Hey, oh, I know somebody who lives there. Tell me about." Uh, they have to know you know, know a little bit about the background so that they could make it, say, make it truthful, you know, make it honest, okay, right. not so, being fake. For instance, if somebody's from Chicago, they got to know about the Cubs, the White Sox, who the mayor right. is, and all that Exa- stuff. Exactly, exactly. What Do you remember, Bernie, the first time you actually looked at one of these fake inflatable tanks or trucks? What did you think? Well, I thought they were pretty neat. I mean, uh, I, I I knew what our mission was. It was a deceptive moment. I mean, when I first went to uh, the first place I went to, when I joined up from uh, from my um, uh, when I first got inducted, I was sent. I had to be sent out to uh, to Fort George G, Maryland, where the unit was uh, was set up, and. Uh, there, what we did is we were we didn't have rubber dummies at the time. We were experimenting, making these uh, these uh, these fake uh, things out of wood slats slats of wood and covering it with burlap and and putting camouflage painting with camouflage colors and and uh, and uh, we got pretty good at doing that. And then halfway through uh, the time we were there, uh, the governments decided they had a, a better way of doing it. And they decided they were gonna they were gonna make rubber dummies, okay, which make it a little easier to carry around and wooden these wooden things and and uh, and uh, easier to yeah just it's, installing them would be easier, and so uh, we had to learn how to learn how to treat those things, take them out of the packages, set them up quickly, and install them, learn how to install them, how to inflate them, and. Uh, once we got the knack of that, then of course they were all set to go. How'd you inflate and them? Was it just a simple pump, we, we, air pump? No, it wasn't air. It was an air compressor. We used air compressors. Yeah, and each each one, like it was a big tank, it had quite a few uh, outlets, on it, like you know, like a uh, valves on them, so that you can blow them up from different areas of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, unit. If it was a big tank, it was divided into sections, also so that. If, a bullet here hit one part of it, the rest of it would, would still be up. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of video out there now of, um, of of these tanks, and there's been, of course, Rick Beyer, a colleague, a former colleague of mine, and he's really well acquainted with you, has has done a wonderful documentary on the Ghost Army and also uh, written a book on it. But when you look right. at when you look at the video, uh, you, you see men holding up a tank. I mean, it's it's hilarious <laughs> stuff. It is. It is. You all must is. have been laughing your heads off when you're doing that. Right. In one of the videos, they have a picture of some two uh, two uh, Frenchmen. This happened in France, in France. And they saw these two, uh, they saw, they looked with their eyes wide open. They saw these, these uh, two guys lifting a tank. And they talked to one of the, another soldier, and they says, "My God, how did they do that?" The American says, 
Americans are pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Holding the that was fun. That was really fun. Oh yeah. Well, you had to be concerned that somebody who saw something highly out of the norm like that would go back and and talk. Uh, they didn't press oh, yeah. any further. Nothing. Yeah, nothing, nothing any further. No, no. Obviously, nothing ever went back to the Germans because obviously they had no knowledge about that. Right. No knowledge at all. Well, then came there were I think your unit had maybe as many as twenty different operations, a variety of things, but the most important one came in Viersen, Germany. That was the post-D-Day push into uh, Germany. The Ninth Army had to cross the Rhine. Tell us what, what your people did that day. Well, uh, that's what I mentioned to you before. When we went into that town, we were going into that town. We had the sound equipment with us that, that produced the sounds of heavy truck movement. And that was in the evening so that nobody could see us okay, but they heard the noise. And that that was that that first was the first indication. Oh, there must be some troops moving in here, okay. And then the second was, of course, uh, uh, just our fakery going into the town and and uh, faking it out and saying, hey, you know, even telling them, hey, we're here and we're going to do this here. We're soldiers and must Rhine and da da da, convincing all these people that uh, that this is going to happen and. Uh, and uh, that made that made it very realistic for us. I mean, what we we're doing, we knew what we had to do. The fake tanks and trucks are all set up, airplane, fake airplanes. When the Germans fly over, they look down and they see you. You've got all the audio broadcasts of troop movements that are not happening in reality going on. And the, then you wake up uh, the next morning, you told me when we first met, that uh, the shells started to come in. So the right. Germans believe that you are the targets. While oh, the ninth, definitely. Yeah. What was oh, that? What, what was that morning like, Bernie? Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> I mean, again, here I am, the guy didn't want to fight, didn't want to be shot at, and here I am up there. Uh, in reality, I'm standing up there. I'm there waving at them, telling them, "Hey, here we are. You got to shoot at us." I'm, that's that was our purpose. <laughs> And so that morning when we got up and heard the shells, I mean, I just left breakfast when they shelled us and uh, the breakfast tent, and uh, and we all <laughs> we all yelled with, you know, triumphantly and saying, hey, we succeeded. <laughs> right. We accomplished our mission. So much for Bernie Bluestein's non-combat role, huh? That's right. <laughs> that's right. And in the meantime, these two uh, these two divisions were crossing the Rhine uh, uh, miles up the up the Rhine without with minimum casualties. The, the Germans had no knowledge they were there. <laughs> that that must have been for you. You said triumphant, cheering, uh, oh, a, a great oh, yeah. reward because this mission would which had to be and remained even after the war for many years super secret. That had to be a tremendous tremendous victory for you. Oh, there's no question about it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean that they made it all worthwhile. I mean that was our mission, and we accomplished our mission. We did what we had to do. When, it was really great. When the artillery started coming in, did did it come close to you? Oh yeah, 
As a matter of fact, they shelled it shelled that mess tent that I just got had got that was out of there about fifteen minutes when I began chilling and hit that mess tent. And as a matter of fact, one of my friends from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, got injured. His leg got injured with shrapnel. Did the Germans ever discover that they were shooting at fake tanks and trucks? Well, I don't know. I mean, nobody's ever told. Nobody's ever said anything about that. I I have no idea. I mean, I would assume they didn't know it. Right. I'm sure they didn't know it. And uh, I don't know if they ever did find out. I mean, I don't know how they would find out unless they heard from, you know. Well, I don't know from who would they who would they find out who would they heard from. Well, we what? certainly wouldn't tell them. <laughs> no. One aspect of this whole operation was that it had to be a complete secret. It was top, top Definitely. secret. And, Definitely. And it and remained so, Bernie, for many years after the war, not until the 90s, this was kept secret. So you weren't even That's able right. to tell your folks when you came home what you did in the war. What did they ask That's you? Oh, well, they asked me, what did you do in the war? And I just admitted it kind of was, they knew I was in the camouflage division. So I said, we did a lot of camouflage work. And I left it at that. <laughs> I never got into any details as to what we did, what our missions was, what our, or even this little thing about Viersen, which is something I really would have loved to talk about because that was a, that was the highlight of my my uh, tenure in the uh, in the service, really. <laughs> yeah, one of the most clever masquerades of uh, of all time. It had to be. Oh, the, yeah, no question about it. Yeah. But the other thing about it again is again, this happened seventy five years ago. Okay, over seventy five years ago. Okay. Yes. And I again, the uh, what we did was the greatest thing in the world. Okay, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really an army man. Okay, I. I did what I had to do. We accomplished what we had to accomplish. It our deed was done, and uh, and then after it was over, I, I pursued my career. Okay, I went on and finished my art school. I was halfway through art school when I was when I was uh, when I enlisted. I went back and finished my school and went on with my profession. Okay, mm-hmm. and we were told again this is secret. So if it's secret, I never talked about it and never even thought about it. Okay. Never. Right. I mean, you know, maybe once in a while it would occur to me, okay, or maybe I'll talk to a buddy of mine who was in the service and we would maybe talk a little bit about, you know, and reminisce a little bit about it, but never had it in my mind. So it wasn't something, if it was some, some other more rewarding type of a thing, you know, and a thing that I was had a more positive attitude about, okay, then maybe it would have stuck in my memory. But it was a secret, so it was locked out of my mind. I didn't even, never thought about it. That's why it's difficult for today for me to remember all these things and try to recall all these things, because for all these years, I never thought about it, never even talked about it. But it must be freeing, in a way, for you to be able to talk about it many years later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel good about talking about it, because... At the time, we never thought much about it. This was something we had to do. This was set up by the government. We They formed us, and we did what we had to do. And it turned to be a pretty successful operation. In addition to that, and the post-war analysis suggests that the efforts of, your, of uh, the special troops may have saved as many as fifteen to 30,000 American lives. 
Oh yes, oh yes. That's the that reality of what feel, you did. Yeah, and that makes that makes me feel good. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah, it made it all worth a while, really. When you were finally free to talk about it, and it was no longer top secret, and people began to learn about the Ghost Army and and what you did, the uh, you you began to get some recognition. And I know you've traveled to Belgium, where you were honored as a representative of uh, of the special troops. 23rd mm-hmm. Quarter Special Troops. That did what did that mean to you when you were there and being recognized for something that had been top secret and unknown for so many for so long? That was that was quite an experience for me. First of all, I'm the only one, okay, that made it to that thing, okay. Okay. And I was a hero, okay. And I felt kind of peculiar about it. And I even had when they had I made a speech there I had to make a speech and I said, Look at you're all you're all giving me all the kudos. I says I think I said the kudos belong to all these men that were in it that aren't recognized now and lost their lives during the war and everything else. I says, uh, I'm just I'm just one person and uh and uh I just did my you understand, I did my job and I don't consider myself a hero. And I, I, I still don't. I mean, I understand what we did was good, was heroic and everything. But again, it wasn't just me. It was, it was all of us, okay? There were 1,100 men in the whole outfit, okay? And this whole bed, and all 1,100 men were the heroes, okay? And there were others. There's still some of us living. I don't know what the exact number is. It doesn't know exactly what it is. But if there's even 20 left, again... The twenty living ones. It's too bad that they could have been there in, in in person too, you know, you know, and gotten recognition too. So that disappointed me a little bit. Our mutual friend Rick Byer is working to win some additional recognition for for the unit in Congress. Can can you tell me as best you know what he's doing in that regard? Well, what he's doing is he's trying to get enough votes from the Congress individuals to to pass this uh, to pass this amendment or whatever it is that will allow us to get the uh, Medal of Honor. So it'd be a, a group effort, and he's he's got to win over congressional votes. So he's doing some lobbying then on your behalf. Yeah, it's all it's all lobbying. That's what it is. And now it's a terrible time too with all this stuff going on now. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're going to have to start it all over again at the beginning of the year because, uh, I mean, they're they're all involved with this election, with the right. with the flu and everything else, and, and uh, this is kind of a that kind of a secondary thing. It's not that really important, really. But what you did will never be lost to time. It's going to be permanently well, etched that. into military history. Yes, I, I suppose so. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned that you remain an artist, and you uh, I know from having visited with you before that you created a miniature tea set out of bullet casings. <laughs> Teeny, right. tiny little things, right? Uh, that took That's some right. intricate work. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm kind of an intricate uh, worker, okay? <laughs> I like little things. I like those challenges. And, uh, I mean, that's what keeps me going again. I was just uh, in August '97, okay, and I'm still able to do my thing. Well, I can't now. I can't go back to school now. That's the worst thing in the world because going to school was keeping me alive, really. 
it was like an everyday thing. I used to go five days a week to Harbor College and uh, and do my artwork there. And now I can't do that. They were, I mean, right. the, the, they, they only have about half the, less than half the students there. And uh, they only have about 10, 10 people in the class, including the instructors. And so I, I can't, they can't squeeze me in. Where do you get all your energy at 97? <laughs> well, I really know. Uh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm losing my energy. I'm, I'm slowing up, Paul. <laughs> you know, as you get, I mean, again, the first thing you do is when you get older is you don't look at numbers, okay? I've never looked at the numbers. The 97 means nothing. The thing that makes me... Uh, more interested in life is how I, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. The numbers is doesn't mean anything, okay? As long as I'm accomplishing and doing the things I want to do, okay? That and, sounds like uh, a, a great prescription for life, for anyone. Fabulous. Oh, yeah. The numbers don't oh, matter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I tell it to as many people as I can because this is the whole idea of life, really, if you're going to live a life. You gotta live it. You gotta live it, okay. And you gotta like what you're doing. I mean, even in jobs, I used to have arguments with some of the employees of places where I used to work, or the guys would say, "Hi, Bernie. You come in in the morning and you're always smiling, and happy. This, this job is so shitty, or whatever." They would they would hate the job, and I keep kept saying to them, "Well, look, if you hate the job so much, then maybe this job isn't for you. Go find another job somewhere where you'll be happy." Right, right. You know. You well, know? you went on a honor flight a number of years ago. What was that experience like? Oh, that was just, that was one of the greatest things of my life, really. Because, again, that was the first time I got the honor, and the honor wasn't because of the Ghost Army. The Army was just, again, the honor flight is funny. All, all soldiers of the past, you know, and it was such an honor thing because, again, when we were soldiers, we were doing things that we had to do, okay? Somebody had to fight, okay? Or somebody had to do their jobs, okay? Somebody had to be in the Army. And so we did our jobs, okay? And we never thought much about it. I mean, it was a job we had to do, and we did it, okay? Right. And now, all of a sudden, we were given such honor and respect. And, I mean, accolades, water, I mean... Planes being hosed down as we come into the airport. I mean, soldiers standing in line, wanting, you know, saluting us. Uh, people, uh, when I came home, it was late at night, obviously. It's a, you, know, you know, it's a one day thing. You don't get home until late. Oh, the place was lined up with all these people with their signs, and they ran up to us and hugged us and shook our hands and thanked us. And everybody that I've ever talked to that ever went to it said that it was one of the funnest things ever in our lives, really. Energizing, right? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you had such yeah. a wonderful experience. That's, that's... Yeah, it, was, it was really great. Yeah, it was really great. 
Well, I'm so happy you're a part of it. I guess you get a, I guess you get a great thrill out of it too. I'm I sure. do, I do, without doubt. It's just enormously rewarding to see expressions on people's faces. You get a sense of the the value of the words "thank you." People you don't know right. are coming up to you. Kids are coming up to you, giving you a handshake or a pat on the back, and That's saying exactly "thank you." Right. That there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of goodwill and a lot of energy that goes into that, and it's uh, just oh, there's no question. enormously rewarding. Well, Bernie, you are a master of deception and illusion and trickery, <laughs> and you are a ghost, but you're living the I'm good life, man. You're living the good life. That's great. I, well, I am. I can't, I can't complain. I really can't. Well, you know what? Again, I'm, I use all the old theories again. Uh, the glass is always not... It's not half full, okay? It's always full, okay? Okay. I always have a positive attitude about things. I made it in my mind a long time ago that I would never let anything bother me, stress me out, okay? And so I'm able to handle my problems. I enjoy, I enjoy the problems. I enjoy the challenges. And, of course, now life is becoming even more of a challenge now as you get older, even though I don't want to believe it, okay, that gotcha. I'm 97. I'm 97 again. I'm really, I'm really probably in pretty good shape compared to a lot of other 97-year-olds. But I'm, I'm beginning to feel it, you know. Yeah. You know, under, understand what it is. Well, but I'm accepting it, okay. I'm saying to myself, hey, this is what it is. But I'm going to live this life up to, to the hills, so right to the end. And that's the way and, to do uh, it. That's the secret. Yep. You kept a secret yep. for many, many years, and now you've got the secret to life. That's great, Bernie. Yeah. Congratulations <laughs> yeah. on, on your your military service. Thank you for that. Thank you for the efforts of the 1,100-member uh, 23rd Headquarters Special Troops and the amazing work that they did. You saved lives. Uh, Nothing can yeah, be greater than okay. that. And I, yeah, I hope I did all right. You know what? I'm not an outward person, and uh, I'm not a performer. I'm not an egotist. I can't brag about things. I don't. I'm free laid back. So it's hard for me to do these things. I always worry about my, you know, my interviews with you, like you with you, my saying the right things. And sometimes I can't come up with the right words at the right time, and you know, it bothers me that I do that. So, I I think you're coming up with the right words, Bernie. Don't worry about that. Have hey, a great Paul, day. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Bernie. We'll see you. Talk to you later. Sure. Bye bye. A postscript on our conversation with Bernie. Rick Beyer, who produced an award-winning documentary on the Ghost Army, is among those lobbying members of Congress to award the Ghost Army with a Congressional Gold Medal. The Gold Medal is a prestigious honor bestowed on groups or individuals whose actions have had an impact on American history. Rick hopes Congress will act while there are still living members of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. As of this recording, it's believed 16 of the men are still with us. Four of them are over 100 years old. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, 
to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.